chapter 2 this morning, Psalm 2, in your Bibles, the first Messianic Psalm that we look at in this series, entitled The Savior in the Psalms, Psalm 2. On Thursday morning, as I was preparing for this message, I typed two words into Google. These were the two words, Sparks Outrage. And multiple news stories came up, as you know. You scroll your phone, the news. Many titles of stories, headlines of stories, will have that phrase in them, sparks outrage. Just in the last few days, there were several that came up, because for some reason we live in a culture that is raging, as you know. In every direction we turn, someone is either sparking outrage or being outraged at something that somebody else has done. And sometimes it's over things that deserve no outrage. Okay, here's some of the headlines that I, that I found in just this brief Google search. Dave Chappelle's joke about a trans man sparks outrage. Footage of a blind woman's moldy house sparks outrage. Disney and Walmart silent about the leaked Supreme Court decision sparks outrage. English Prime Minister Boris Johnson's photo shoot on a bulldozer sparks outrage. <laughs> A housing ad for basement cots that costs $420 sparks outrage. I'm outraged just reading these, I tell you what. And maybe some of these stories deserve outrage, I don't know, but my point is this. We live in a culture that scours the internet looking for something to be outraged about. And that is true more and more. And is that a new development really in our world? Not really. The proliferation of social media probably makes it more of a noticeable thing. But I would say, according to Psalm 2, what David wrote 3,000 years ago, the world has always, people have always been raging. And it's not just about GMO foods and, and fossil fuels. People have been raging for years against God and against his anointed what we'll see in Psalm 2, written over 3,000 years ago, how appropriate and how true it is for today. And in Psalm 2 today, I want to show you where the psalmist takes us. He kind of takes us on this journey from distress about the world to hope in the king. We're going to look at this passage through the lens, as it were, of three kings. And the first king we see is the human king who wrote it. The human king who wrote Psalm 2. Now, in your Bible, you look at Psalm 2 and you'll say, ah, it doesn't tell me who wrote it. It's actually Acts 4, verse 25, tells us that David wrote this psalm. Now, we don't know when he wrote it. We don't know what time of life. Some of the psalms give us that. They'll tell us at this time he wrote this. We don't have that regarding this. But with the opening lament about the evil of nations and the destruction of people, it seems to indicate that it would probably be at a time of, of duress during David's life, a low point of his life, maybe when enemies were surrounding him. Could have been when they were closing in on them. It could have been when Saul was chasing him. Maybe when the Philistines were attacking, as they did often during his reign. In other Psalms, we see similar language to this. If you flip just a few pages back to Psalm 17, and you look at verses 8 to 12, it could be a time like this in which Psalm 2 was written. In Psalm 17, verses 8 through 12, David seems to be facing some struggles as well. 
He says, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey. And like a young lion lurking in secret places. Maybe something like that is what David is going through when he pens Psalm 2, especially with the opening lament there. But what we see in Psalm 2 and in the Psalms that David wrote is that David is a human king facing human challenges, yet appointed by God to rule his people. And we see him from a human perspective saying, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Because he's a human king facing human challenges, as we all do, yet he's appointed by God. He's not a perfect man by any stretch, not even a perfect king, but Acts 13 tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. It says something about David. And his struggles with enemies potentially serve as the backdrop for this messianic psalm of hope, in which not the human king David rises as the hero, it's a different hero. It's not David, it's the divine king Jesus who rises as the hero in this psalm. And we're going to see that through this psalm and also many of the other psalms as well. But before we get to how Jesus appears here in Psalm 2, I do want to go back kind of to last week and clarify something for us. Clarify something regarding how we see Jesus in the psalms. Because we've been looking at this, and I want to kind of set the scene for this in every one of the psalms we cover. Because we were in growth groups last week, and the question was asked, how do we know that a specific psalm speaks as a prophecy about Christ and, and because it seems like it's kind of just a normal part of the psalm. You know, where does it switch from a psalm to prophecy? And that was an excellent question. Excellent question. My brother Rachel, I won't say who asked it. Um, but no, last Sunday, if you remember, Psalm 34, verse 20, was what we were looking at. It was our example of the messianic nature of the psalms. And if you remember, Psalm 34 is just rolling along like a normal psalm. You know, hope, encouragement, all that. And then all of a sudden, in verse 20, these words show up. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. You say, well, how do we know that that is referring to Christ and isn't just a part of Psalm 34? Well, there's one, one big key here, and I failed to mention this last week, is in John 19, when it talks about the soldiers coming and, and breaking the legs of the other ones, it says they came to Jesus and they didn't break his legs. And then in John 19, 36, it says these words, that the scripture, these things were done, that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. So oftentimes the New Testament will tell us that this was done in order to fulfill what was said however many thousands of years ago. Now, we look back at the Old Testament and say, where was that said? Well, the only place those words show up specifically are in Psalm 34, 20, and in the Passover references to the lamb whose legs were not to be broken. And so we see here that the New Testament is telling us that what happened here is fulfilling what the Psalms told us in 34, 20. Now I want you to watch this because as we look through the Psalms, this is going to be important. Be aware that the Psalms are usually subtle in their descriptions of Christ. It's subtle. You think about prophecies in Isaiah or Micah, it's like, you know, bold proclamation. This will happen at this time, in this way, in this place. Well, 
Well, Psalms doesn't really do that. And so probably a better word than prophecy, as this is a prophecy of Christ, a better word would probably be Christ is alluded to here. This is an allusion to Christ, or kind of a foreshadowing of Christ, instead of a bold proclamation. It's not as overt as in some places. And so when David writes Psalm 2, he's writing as a human king who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and by that he is foreshadowing and pointing to the divine king, Jesus. So notice that. Usually subtle. However, I will say, as we look through Psalm 2, you're going to see Psalm 2, probably one of the, 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 the not as subtle psalms. It's pretty overt in here. It's pretty easy to find where Jesus is here in Psalm 2. But before we get to where Jesus shows up, there are some kings that are mentioned. So the first king we saw was the human king who wrote it. That was David. Now notice the first three verses of Psalm 2. The evil king's rage. The evil king's rage. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, don't just read through this like we do sometimes. You have to see the emotion in this. This is David crying out, Why do the nations rage, God? Why? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why do these kings and rulers set themselves against God and against his anointed one? Why do they all band together to take counsel against God? You notice here how widespread it is. The rulers are raging. The people are plotting and raging. Whole nations aren't uprising. Everyone's in on it. Everyone's a part of this. What are they saying in their rage? Verse 3. What do their, to put it in today's terms, what do their riots and their social media diatribes and legislation and courtroom decisions and media outlets and wars and speeches, what are they saying in those things? This is what they're saying. Verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Who is there? In your Bible, it may be that the there is capitalized. Might be a T. Capital T. There is God, the Lord, and his anointed. So why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? And they say, let us break their bonds. In other words, let us break the Lord's and his anointed's bonds. And cast away their cords from us. Here's what they're saying in plain English. They are saying in verse 3, we don't want God over us. We don't want him we want to do what we want to do with no restraint and no accountability. And every time people like this act on that impulse, it is raging against God and his anointed one. And we see the fallout from that all over our world. They are raging against God. Now, we see Christ show up pretty quickly in this psalm at the end of verse 2. He says they rage against the Lord and against his anointed one. Anointed one is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is translated for us, Messiah. The Messiah. 
Who's that? This is Jesus, the one who was promised throughout Scripture. He's revealed at the proper time. Then he was crucified, he was buried, he rose again the third day to accomplish salvation for all of us who will believe. That's who it's revealed here. And that's the one that people reject. They say, we don't want God, and we certainly don't want the one he sent. 3,000 years ago, approximately, David writes this. 3,000 years. And I think he kind of sits, as we look back now, he sits kind of right in the middle of human history. And I think he's looking back on the roughly 3,000 years before him. And we could say he's looking ahead to 3,000 years to our day as well. Because people have always been raging against God. It's true for all time. Way back to the very beginning, Satan rejected God's rule in heaven. Adam and Eve threw off God's rule at the very beginning of humanity. They raged against God by eating that fruit. People raged against God and paid the price in the flood of Noah's day when it says there was sin, the wickedness of man was so great on the earth that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. People disobeyed God and tried to, to make a name for themselves with this tower built to the heavens. Raging against God, he comes down, he confuses them at battle. People rejected God's prophets and judges and killed many of them so that they could, what the last verse in Judges says, they could do what was right in their own eyes. We fast forward a little bit, the story of God sends Christ to redeem his people, but he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him, they raged against him, and they killed him. And since Christ, as we look back on 2,000 years of human history since Christ, we see the sinfulness and chaos and God-hating attitudes, 2,000 years worth of that since Christ. Right after Christ came, Rome hated God. They hated Christ. They hated Christians. They slayed thousands of Christians in their regime. The Roman Emperor Diocletian in the 3rd century erected two monuments in Spain built to applaud himself for, quote, extinguishing the name of Christians and for abolishing the superstition of Christ. Look at your Bibles quickly to Acts chapter 4. Psalm 2 is quoted here in Acts chapter 4. Verses number 25 and 26, but I want to read verse 23 now. Notice in, in Acts 4, this is a time when the apostles are just kind of getting going with their ministry. Peter's preaching this amazing sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. They're, they're kind of in and out of prison right now. Acts 3, the, the, the lame man at the gate is healed. Peter and John get thrown in prison. They're told not to preach. They say we're going to preach anyways. This is back and forth between the Jewish leaders and this Roman persecution going on. Notice what they say, verse 23. Being let go from prison, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Acts 4.24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together 
to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I think the apostles take comfort in what David has written a thousand years before they existed. In David's day, the nations were raging. People were raging. But the apostles were facing some of that early on. All of the apostles, as you know, were marked, except for John, they tried to kill several times. They were being raged against. They looked back to what David said, and he said that the nations were raging then. And they claimed Psalm 2 as an encouragement that though being squeezed by these persecutions, they pray for boldness to serve God despite that squeeze. And God answers their prayer. He gives them boldness. Now, the raging against God certainly didn't stop when Rome fell. The Catholic Church raged against God in the Middle Ages by manipulating and stifling the truth from people. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, and others have raged against God by massacring millions. Islam and terrorism rages against God and spreads across much of the world. China rages against God by abusing its own people. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a rage against God. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> to encourage you, right? You know, even in Mother's Day, there's a rage against God. Because the world tells us you shouldn't say Happy Mother's Day. It says you should say Happy Birthday Person Day. That's a rage against God. That's horrendous. It's Happy Mother's Day. We live in a world that rages right now, maybe as strongly as it ever has. And it really has always raged against God and against Christ. But thankfully, that's them, right? Not us. All those, all those examples I went through, that was in Rome, and that was in you know, the Catholic Church, and that was China, and that was Islam. And that was, does America rage against God? Certainly not. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. America rages against God. Let me take you on a brief tour of just four U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Just four. 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court decided that African Americans were, were not and could never be American citizens. They were a lower class of people that did not deserve fair treatment, even though made in the image of God. That's a rage against God and against his creation. In 1896, the Plessy v. Ferguson case deemed racially segregated public facilities to be legal and appropriate. It's a rage against God's creation, against Him. In 1973, the landmark Roe versus Wade decision invented a right to abortion out of the Constitution and legalized abortion nationwide, leading the countless slaughter of babies for the last 50 years. America rages against God. Now, praise be to God, in events this week, we are currently standing on the precipice of years of prayer and hard work coming to fruit. That potentially, Lord willing, we see that ruling reverse. Pray for that. Pray for strength for people as they fight that. Yet, mark my words, when by God's grace that happens and Roe versus Wade is reversed, we will see just how hot and just how full throated. Rage against God 
Unfortunately, our hope is not in this world. We are citizens of Christ, citizens of heaven. Our hope is in Christ. 2015, in, here in these United States of America, the, the Obergefell decision made same-sex marriage legal throughout the United States, thus paving the way for sexual, marital, gender confusion, and ideologies that really have reshaped the landscape of humanity and relationships. That's only seven years ago. And we experienced some of the raging and the fallout from that as the world goes nuts in those areas. Does America rage against God and against his Christ? Yes, it does. It always has. The whole world is in this, this rage against God, as, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 2, 1 and 2. This rage against Christ, this rage against his people, breaking, wanting to break, as it says in verse 3, breaking their connection to God, wanting to cast off all restraint until they're no longer defined by God, no longer defined by the concept of a Bible. Several months ago, I quoted this movie, the song from it, and I quote Queen Elsa again from Frozen. In that song, she says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. And that's where we are, our nation. No connection to God, not, not wanting that accountability, but instead raging against him, shaking our fists in his face. Now notice, please, because it's easy to think that's them, not us. But what we see described in verse 3 regarding that this raging of the world is not just kings. It's not just important people. Rather, it is really a vivid picture, a vivid description of the rebellion of the human heart that exists within everyone, even us. Because our sin nature is still there. We're not defined by it anymore through Christ. We're in Christ. Yet what we see played out for us in the world is actually within each one of us, in, in essence. That nature that can rage against God. Charles Spurgeon said this, we have in these three verses, Psalm 2, 1, 2, and 3, we have a description of the hatred of the human nature against the Christ of God. Who has the human nature? We all do. So be careful. Now in verse 4, how does God respond to all this? The nations are raging, the people are plotting, they are taking counsel together against God, how does he respond? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Not exactly what you would think, right? Not, not the word you would think is coming along when you say, well, how's God responding to this? But take note, he does not hide. He does not give up. He does not run. It says, he laughs. It's the only time in scripture that God is said to laugh. And it's not a trouble. It's not a ha-ha. It's a laugh of derision. It's a mocking laugh. In other words, he laughs at them that they in their puny strength think that in their weak alliances together that they are in control. God laughs at people that think they are in control. He laughs that they can think that they can get rid of him so easily. He laughs that they think they can legislate him into irrelevance. He laughs that Frederick Nietzsche said God is dead. And he laughs that people still believe that to be true. He laughs a laugh of derision when our own president says that abortion should be a human right because he exists as a child of God. 
who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold him in derision. Then, verse 5, he shall speak to them in his wrath. And when God speaks in his wrath, no one's laughing anymore. No one's laughing. And if God is laughing a laugh of, of mockery and derision at you, get ready because there will come a time when that laugh will turn to wrath. He will speak to them in his wrath. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Isaiah 13.11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It says in verse 5, he speaks to them in his wrath. He distresses them in his deep displeasure. If you stand opposed to God, you better watch Now here's his ultimate response, verse 6. This is great. This is what it's building to. The nations are raging. People are plotting. God is laughing. God is pouring out his wrath. And then his ultimate response to what is going on in the world is verse 6. He says, yet, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Take a wild guess who that king is. That's Jesus. And he says, I have set Jesus on my hill. He is the one that is ruling. He will, this is the climax of the script right here. It's the turning point of the drama. God says, you think you rule? Uh-uh. No, you don't. I have set, I rule, I have set my king on my holy hill. And he will reward those who come to him. And he will utterly destroy those who reject him and try to overthrow him. Christ is king. Amen. Christ is the fulcrum of all of history. He's the one that the Old Testament points us to. And he's the one that the New Testament says he's come, so believe in him. Jesus is the, the hinge on which humanity swings. Jesus is this. It's either believe and be saved or reject him and be destroyed. All of humanity focuses on Christ. Whether they believe it or rage against him or not. And that brings us to our third king. The divine king rules. We saw the human king who wrote this psalm. That's David evil kings who rage against God. And now we see the divine king who rules. Now notice in verse 6, God says, I have set my king on my holy hill aside. We have to think about that for a second. Because when David writes this, had Jesus come? No. Jesus is still a thousand years away. His coming is still a thousand years in the distance. And yet God says, I have set him. So notice this. The coming of Christ in David's time is still in the future, yet it is so sure to happen that it is as if it has already happened. He says, I have done this. I will do this. In David's day, it was Jesus will come. In our day, it's Jesus has come, and guess what? He's coming again. That's where we stand right now. And the next time he comes to earth will be that passage we read in our scripture in Revelation 19 where it says he comes on that white horse and God sets him up as king forever. This is the king who comes to fulfill what God told David in 2 Samuel 7 when he said there will be a king who 
rules on your throne forever and ever. That's Jesus, and he will arise to fulfill that Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. It's the king of kings that will rule the nations with the rod of iron. He's the king of kings that is to rule in our hearts and in our lives. It is, this is the king of kings who God has highly exalted and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of heaven and on earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the king. This is the king who came as a lamb, was killed, was buried. And he rose again the third day. This is the king that's coming that all other kings will bow to. It's the king who is worthy, as Revelation tells us, above all else to receive blessing and glory and honor and power. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he will reign forever and ever. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Jesus All other kings pale in comparison. Though they shake their fists and make their decrees and rage. Christ is king. Now in verses 7 through 9, this king, the divine king, Jesus speaks. And here we see an example of Jesus speaking in the Old Testament. Verses 7 through 9, he tells us what God has told him. I don't let this confuse you here. Verse 7. This is Jesus, the king, speaking. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So this is Jesus. These are words, the words of God from Jesus, about Jesus, to help define for us who Jesus is. Does that make any sense at all? This is Jesus talking to us, saying, God has told me this. And through these words, he's describing for us who he is. And the words he says in the end of verse 7 are this. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this phrase, just that last phrase in verse 7, is quoted verbatim three times in the New Testament. See that in just a second. But it's also hinted at in multiple other places. Two places specifically that might come to mind when Jesus here says that God has said, You are my son. Does that take you back anywhere in the New Testament? Jesus is baptism. He comes out of the water and they hear that voice from heaven and, and the Holy Spirit like a dove is on him and he says what? This is my son. And it happens again something very similar at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus declares with, with the, the three apostles there uh, seeing this happen, he declares this is my son. And then this phrase verbatim is quoted in Acts 13 verse 33. Stated there to confirm, this is Paul at Antioch, Pisidia, and this is stated to confirm that Jesus is God's Son. He is the King, and that through His resurrection and His ascension into heaven, He is confirmed as the one from God. Hebrews 1, verse 5, it says to the angels, This was never said, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. What is he saying? Hebrews 1 5, he's saying that Jesus is higher and he's better than any other angel, any other angels at all. He says, This is my son. I've said that to any other angel. Because no angels are my son. Hebrews 5 5, he quotes it again verbatim. And in 5 5, it's to say that Jesus is higher than the high priest. That he is the ultimate high priest. Jesus is the high priest that all the other priests 
They were all supposed to be indications of the great high priest who was to come. And here, all these quotations or allusions in the New Testament point us back to Psalm 2, confirming for us Jesus is the one. He is the king. He is the son of God. Now, in verses 8 and 9, we have a description a little bit more of Christ's rule as king. Look at verse 8. Ask of me. Once again, Jesus quoting God. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. So verse 8 tells us that Christ will have the nations for his inheritance. What comes to my mind is Satan's temptation of Christ. Remember that? One of them was, he took him up into that mountain, he said, look over the kingdoms of the world, and if you bow down to me, you can have them. You know why that temptation fell a little flat? Because he already had them. He has the nations for his inheritance. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ will rule with a rod of iron. And that is restated for us in Revelation 2.27, the letter to the five-tire church, where it says that Christ will rule. We will rule all people with a rod of iron. He will be the authority. And we see here in Psalm 2 a glimpse of, of what the whole Bible does. The whole Bible points us to Jesus' life of love, his, his sacrifice as a Savior, and his rule as King. That's the, that's the message of the Bible in a nutshell. Now, in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist breaks back in. Look at these verses. Verses 10, 11, and 12, we see are called to respond to Jesus' kingship. Verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. He says, hey, pay attention, kings, rulers, in essence all people, pay attention. Because Jesus is king, therefore you, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How do I respond? What is the human response to the fact that Jesus is king? What is to be my response as a human person? Loved by God, what is my response to be to the fact that Jesus is king? Number one, serve him. Verse 11. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now notice, it doesn't say just serve him in any way you want to. But serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's a classic movie called The Princess Bride. And in that movie, Buttercup asks the dread pirate Roberts, who are you? And he responds by saying, I am no one to be trifled with. Jesus, much more than that, much more than the dread pirate Roberts, is no one to be trifled with. Serve him with fear. Serve him, but serve him rightly, with holy fear, with adoration. Worship him, but do so in spirit and in truth, because that is how God deserves to be worshipped. Take it lightly, your responsibility to serve Then verse 12, we see, kiss him. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And he perishes away when his wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss him. Now initially, that sounds a little weird, okay? Granted. But it's not referring to some wet romantic kiss. It's talking about a kiss of submission. As someone would do coming before a king, they would bow before him, maybe kiss his significant ring, saying that I am, I am, subservient to you. I'm showing you reverence, obeisance to you. 
And that's what he says we are. Come to the Son, who is the King, and bow to him. And he's pretty clear. He says, basically, submit to this King, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled by a little. Submit to the King, or be destroyed by the King. That's basically what he's saying. Because in Christ, we see both love and wrath. Love for all those who call on him, wrath for all those who reject him. And then the very last phrase of Psalm 2, it says, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Serve him, kiss him, trust him. All those who put their trust in him are blessed. So do it. Trust him to forgive you of your sins. Trust him with your eternal future. Trust him with every aspect of your life. You know, it's a hard thing to do when we talk about a king talk about government, but well, we don't trust it very well, do we? And for good reason sometimes. But this game, this game is totally different. This game can always be trusted. And blessed are those who put their trust in him. He's the king. I want to close out today with two quotations. The first is from Martin Luther. And the third verse of a mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther says something that really sums up the message well for us today. He says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For though his doom is sure, one little word shall tell him. Then the other quotation is from Romans 8. Would you look there? Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. I think this is important to us. That even though the world is raging, even though many are struggling, this passage is true. Because it reminds us of who's in control. It reminds us of who we submit to servants of the king. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's us. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God 